Our sermon passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy, merciful Father, we come before you as we come before your word, trusting and relying on your spirit to work in us, to apply this word to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to encourage us and strengthen us and send us out into this world as lights and heralds of your good news. We pray that you do this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, you know, this is another one of those passages like, like we've been getting into with, with Jesus. He takes us into the uncomfortable places and exposes and, and opens up things that uh, we would rather sometimes see not open. And, and uh, this morning's topic on idolatry and our affections is, uh, is one of those uncomfortable places. I know it was uncomfortable for me to even study and read in this. And one of the things that got me thinking about was the very beginning of the story of Scripture uh, in the garden. You know, before the fall of Adam and Eve, you know, if you would have gone up to Adam uh, and you asked him if you were going to worship service today on the Sabbath, he would have been confused because all of his life would have been marked by worship. Right, the garden, in a very real way, was, was the temple of God, and 
All that Adam did was an act of worship in his presence, his daily labors, his caring for the animals as he named them. I like to think he was riding a lion around the garden and you know, his time with Eve, all of it was worship to God. And there's a truth there that echoes in all of life that you, you weren't made to worship, you were actually made worshiping. You, you can't help it. You can't turn it off and on. It's part of everything about you. It's, it's as natural, even more natural to you than, than your breathing. You can't help yourselves. You were made worshiping. It's a part of your humanity. And this idea can sound a little abstract, uh, but in simple terms, to be made worshiping is to be made pouring out your heart's affections. Every moment of every day is driven actually by your deepest affections. Those are the things that drive your actions, your deepest desires drive you. And in the fall of Adam and Eve, this is actually what was broken. Our worship was broken. And, and it's not that you stopped worshiping. It's, it's just that now you have, you have competitors for your affections. Every, different things vying for your affections. And most of the time, they end up being good things, like family, context here, money, that we, we make ultimate things. You know, in the context of our story here, it's wealth. Wealth is a, a gift of, of God. Our, our church exists today because of the generosity of wealthy people. However, finding your worth and value in your wealth will actually crush you. You know, you, we saw this in a real way, you know, in the financial crash of the early 2000s. People who had lost all their money were seen jumping out of windows to their death. It's like, why would you do that? It's because they couldn't imagine life without their money. And so the thought of going on with nothing was too great a price for them. And this is, this is the end of our worship when we have competitors for our affections. And this is the problem for the, the man that we meet in this story, the rich young man who his wealth holds his deepest affections. And as we dive into this text, I think what we're going to find is, is, is that the story about wealth is actually about more than just, just money. It's about all of our deepest affections, your, your deepest desires. And Jesus is asking you this morning, what do you trust in? He's asking you this morning, what do you love? What captivates your soul? Jesus is coming for all of our idols. And although it's painful, we're in desperate need to have our affections reoriented by Christ, to be recaptivated uh, from our vain pursuits of, of idols. And so as we dive into this this morning, we're going to consider just two things. First, that Jesus exposes our affections. And second, that Jesus reorients our affections. So first, Jesus exposes our affections. Look with me back here at verse 17. It says, as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right, so you get this idea, Jesus has just finished some teachings, he's, he's headed out. We know from the rest of the story, he's actually on his way to Jerusalem, and, uh, which will be kind of a reoccurring theme until he gets there. And uh, this young man comes up to him and asks him a question that seems like a good question. He says, good teacher, right, what must I do? Right? And who better to ask this question to than Jesus? Right? Who better to call good teacher than Jesus? There's no one better. He seems like a model for us. And then Jesus responds strangely as he often does. He does his Jesus things and uh, he says this. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What a strange response that Jesus gives this man. 
Is Jesus saying that he's not God? Well, of, of course not. Uh, what Jesus is getting at is this. He says, if you're going to call me good, you better be willing to call me God. Uh, and it's at this point that we start to get the feeling that there's something else going on that, that, that we don't quite get yet as a reader. And Jesus continues on in verse 19 saying this. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. If you notice, uh, Jesus skips the first half of the, the Ten Commandments, right? And he focuses on the second half. And the second half of the, the Ten Commandments focus on our horizontal relationships. Like Jesus summarized, love your neighbor. And so the first half of the Ten Commandments focus on our vertical relationship with God. You know, love, love God. And uh, Jesus is kind of setting him up right here. And the rich man responds like this. He says, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He must have just had this big grin across his face thinking, I did it. I, I, got, I got it. I, I made it. I, not only do I have immense wealth, but I have eternal wealth, and I've, and I've earned eternal life. He, you know, it's like he won the, the lotto, and, uh, and then verse 21 happens. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. You know, for anyone that's been uh, coming to our Wednesday evening compassion studies, this movement from Jesus will be familiar to you. Uh, he, he looks towards Jesus. I mean, Jesus looks towards this man and, and he moves towards him. He has compassion. He loves him. And, uh, you know, when Jesus exposes our idols, this is a good thing to remember, is it's always actually out of love that he does this. It's painful, excruciating, and depending on your idol and how, how much you're holding on to, it'll make you feel like you're about to die. But it's always out of, this is precisely why Jesus comes to us and exposes them. It's out of love because our idols give us empty promises. And it's out of love that Jesus exposes them. That we might find the true place for our worship, which is only in him. And he calls us to come and follow. And he says to him, listen, you lack one thing. And you don't really see it in the English, but in the, in the Greek you see it. The poor is actually a different version of the word lack. And so he's actually saying you lack one thing that you don't give to those who lack. Right? He lacks because the poor are lacking. He thinks he is wealthy because his storehouse is full. But Jesus doesn't measure wealth by what you have. But interestingly here, it seems like he's measuring it by what those around you have. This man has hoarded his wealth. He hasn't shared it. And unless he lets go of his grip on his wealth, he will never be able to cling onto the kingdom of heaven. You can't bring your idols into God's kingdom. Right? Unless he recognizes that he is as needy as an infant that we learned last week, like a child, he will never be able to come into the kingdom of God because the one who trusts in his earthly possessions and his own ability and his own strength will actually never call on Jesus for, for anything because you're never going to actually need him. And in this, Jesus is saying, unless you can do this, unless, you, unless you, you've really kept these commandments, you can't follow me. And the reality is that he hasn't kept the commandments because he hasn't given away his money. And he's saying, not only are you not keeping the love your neighbor part, but because it's always about the heart, you're not even keeping the first part of the command, which is to love God. Because he loves his money more than anything. And the question for us is this, what do you love more than anything? 
What do you hold dear? It's probably something that's good. But if you didn't have it, you might think jumping out a window is the only option that you have. What do you love more than anything? Jesus has exposed his truest love. And then we see something sad happen to this man. It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now we don't know what happened to this man after this. You know, maybe he, he went away, thought about it, considered, and, and eventually gave up all he had. But, but you have the sad moment that He's not able to give up his things. His idols were exposed and he chooses his, his wealth over anything else. And in a real way, the, the cost of eternal life was too great for this man. He couldn't afford it. And uh, because this rich man wasn't able to see who Jesus was, he wasn't able to follow him. Right? The price too high. The demand to obtain eternal life was too great. He can't imagine, imagine life without his money because it is his God. It'd be like you imagining your life without Christ. This is what happens when false affections are fostered in us. His affections towards his wealth was too strong. His trust in it was too great to give it up. And this is a truth that we have to recognize first who Jesus is. And unless we turn and follow him, the price for you will always be too great. Jesus exposes his idols. And next he turns to the disciples to expose their idols. In verse 23, after the man had walked away, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus doubles down talking about wealth. Why does he say this? Because wealth is actually one of the most vile idols in our hearts. First uh, Timothy says, you know, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Right? It's not money that's the root of evil, but the love of it, the idol of it. Because it, it mistakes worldly wealth as being the true treasure. And it means that you will do whatever it takes to obtain it. And this leads people in this world to all kinds of evil. And then to drive this point home further, Jesus gives this fun comparison uh, from in verse 25, he says, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the, enter the kingdom of God. You know, there was an old uh, SNL skit um, in the early 2000s or so, and what they'd done is they'd created this lab that was dedicated, uh, funded by wealthy people, to find a way to get a camel through the eye of a needle and so one of, the, one of the parts of the lab, they were trying to say, how can we shrink a camel small enough to get it through the eye of a needle? Another one, they were actually trying to like, how do, maybe we can blend it down into liquid form uh, and get it through the eye of a needle. It's a great skit. You, you can't even find it online anymore. It's uh, hidden. But, uh, but it's this, you know, it's this hilarious thing, but it's actually hits the mark of what happens when, when money's are idle. We hear Jesus say this, and we're like, great. I just got to figure out how to get a camel to have a needle and we're, we're good, right? Uh, because their trust is in their wealth, they think that they can buy their way out of any problem. They think that there's no problem that my God can't solve. Uh, and in it, they miss the point entirely. Uh, in, in case this is groundbreaking for you, camels can't fit through eyes of needles. I was going to bring a camel and a needle here before I say, but I couldn't find a needle. So... Uh, there we go. Um, so he's saying, what he's saying is this is impossible. 
right? Those who put their trust in their wealth cannot come into God's kingdom. Uh, And what he is saying is that people who find their treasure in their storehouses on earth will never enter God's kingdom because they have no need for it. And this is a direct application of what we talked about last week. And uh, the, the disciples get it. They actually get what he's saying. It says they're astonished. Uh, they were astonished, and, and they say this. In verse uh, uh, 26, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? This is the right question. Who can be saved? Who can come into your kingdom if this is true, if this is the bar, and if we all struggle with idolatry, if we all struggle with misplaced affections and loves, then who can come into this kingdom? And if we're doing any honest reflection of our own lives right now, the question is already on your mind, what can we do about this? And Jesus says to them, uh, Jesus looked at them, he says, with man it is impossible. He's saying, it is impossible for you to do this. Even think about the question that the, that, the, that the man asked him. He said, what must I do? He said, there's nothing you can do. Uh, it isn't something that you can be good enough for. It isn't something that you can uh, be gained in an ordinary transaction. You can't go into the marketplace and buy this kind of thing. You can't be good enough for this. Our idolatry is too strong. Our love for false gods is too deep. And before Jesus can give us the sweet antidote of the gospel, which he does do, he has to expose this truth, right? Like a doctor breaking a bone to heal it. He has to show us the depth of our need, the depth of our infancy before we will believe and cling to him. He has to expose the rich man in such a way that he has to despair. Because unless you despair of your idolatry, unless you despair of your false affections, you will never be able to see your need of, of, of God. Unless we see how helpless and needy like children we are, we never accept Christ for who he is. We always just see him as a good teacher and not as the God-man. And in this, his news won't actually be good for us. It'll only be sad because we're only gonna be able to see what we're losing, not the infinite grace that we are receiving. And so Jesus first exposes the idols of this man and gets us to ponder our own idols to expose them Out of love, he does this, but he doesn't leave us there. He moves us and reorients our affections to give us new, deeper affections. And this is the second thing we see here is that Jesus reorients our affections, right? With man, it is impossible. What does he say? He says, but not with God. He says, uh, with man, it is impossible, not with God, for all things are possible with God. While we are helpless to do anything about our affection, while there's nothing we can do about it, God is not helpless like we are. He is the only one that can do and he does do. He loves to reorient our affections. This is what Jesus came to do for us. And Jesus does this work for us here. But first, Peter, like he does when he's uncomfortable, starts speaking. And I love this. It says, Peter began to say to him, which indicates that when Jesus speaks, he's actually interrupting him. Right, Peter began to say, see, we have left everything and followed you. Uh, almost making it about himself. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake 
and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus interrupts Peter and says, listen, whatever you give up for my sake and for the gospel, but we'll be repaid to you a hundredfold. Not with the riches that you think you might have. He's not giving you riches that are going to, uh, where moth and, and rust destroy, but riches that are eternal. And interestingly enough, the greatest rich, riches he, he shows us here are the family of God. And it says this is something you actually get now in this time. And when you come into God's kingdom, you get the riches of the kingdom, which is here is the family of God, which is the church. And in this, you have new fathers and new mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And we are in desperate need of this. I think it's easy for us to think that, that only those that are maybe converting to other faiths lose their earthly families. You know, the common example, I know of people that have converted from Islam or, or Hinduism and they've lost all touch with their families. And obviously that's in purview here that you gain the family of God. But, but this is actually true of everybody. We are all called in some degree away from our biological families. We're all called to cling to Christ above all things, including our families, which can sound a little crazy to us because we idolize our families, if we're honest. But when we do this, he's not saying that you don't respect your, and honor your father and mother. He's saying that you hold me greater and more strongly than even your family. That the bond we have as a church family is the greatest bond you will have with anybody. This bond is stronger than blood, is what he's saying. And when we do this, when we step out and we cling to him over all things, we find that we get a hundredfold return. We, we think that we're missing something. When we step out in faith and we cling to God and his kingdom and his treasures, we feel like we're losing something. But what we gain here, he says, is a hundredfold. That true wealth isn't something that money can buy. But the family that you, you gain, he is reorienting our vision of wealth here. Where we can say to each other, listen, if I lack, you lack. If you lack, I lack. And we share in the kingdom together, not hoarding for ourselves, but freely given of what is given, God has given to us. And this obviously is more than just money and wealth and resources. Even if we were all below the poverty line, this would be true of us, right? This is what Paul says, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We share our emotional, relational capital with each other. Our entire lives then are reoriented. Our, our monetary system is upended. Your money is no good here. Although you should still definitely tithe. Um, the, that was supposed to be fun. See, what I've noticed is the things that I think are funny, you don't. And the things that you think are funny, I don't. So we'll work on that. A different kind of reorientation is needed. But earthly wealth comes and goes, but the kingdom wealth is eternal. This is so strong. He's, he's so serious about this that even when persecutions come, they will pale in comparison to what we gain in Christ. What an interesting addition with, with persecutions. That is going to come, and in the age to come, life eternal. He's saying true wealth is giving so that none lacks. The first then are last, and the last are first. Are, are, are first. And our affections are reoriented to learn to see a powerful truth that 
serving and giving, what we have away is actually the greater wealth. It's how we show our wealth is in our giving. Jesus is reorienting our affections, reorienting us to this lasting kingdom, which says we can give up what we have freely because what we gain in Christ is so much greater than anything you will ever give up. He is infinitely more worthy of our affections than the greatest wealth the world can offer. Jesus is saying to them, stop striving for earthly riches. They come and go. You might grow rich, you might grow poor. That's not the point. Lasting treasures that are stored up in heaven can only be attained by giving, by making yourself the least, by becoming last. It is seen that when a brother or sister is lacking, we are lacking, and it's meeting those needs and chasing that as much as we chase after earthly wealth. And if we believed that true wealth was found in giving, what would stop us? Nothing. Because this is God's kingdom. This is eternal stuff. And the only way we can actually believe this and live this out is by the Spirit of God working in us, reviving dead hearts. And as our hearts are made flesh, as they are stirred by Christ, we have to practice this in real life. Right? You can't change your hearts. The affections of the world are too strong for you. The pull is too great. And so when Jesus comes by his spirit and re-enchants your heart's affections to be stirred by Christ, our call is to, f- to do the things that are necessary to fan the flames of affections towards Jesus, to fan the flames of our worship and love for Christ and away from, from false idols. This is not just about giving something up, but he's saying, listen, what you gain is infinitely more than what you will ever give up in this life. So how do we do this? How do we fan the flames of affections towards Christ? Well, here's, here's a couple ideas of a myriad of options. First, I wanna say this, that this doesn't mean that everyone should run out of this room and empty your bank accounts. In fact, oftentimes that impulse to do this is actually you thinking that you can earn yourself salvation if you just, if you just gave up everything that you had. Or you think that God will love me more if I gave away all my money. But this is where we first remember that God's love for you lacks nothing. You can't earn his love. You already have it, so stop trying to gain it. So first, I think that's an important thing to remember. Second question for us is, do we hoard the things that we have or do we give freely of ourselves? And so often we think this means that it's only wealthy people that struggle with this and, us, and, and poor people struggle with this less, but that's not always the case. Oftentimes people in poverty can think about money more than someone with money. And so this isn't about the size of your bank account, it's about what you do with the things that you have. It's about giving what you can, knowing and trusting that everything that you have is from Jesus, and so practice giving with whatever it is that he has given you. And one very practical application is stepping out in faith and tithing. Stepping out in faith and giving of what you have back to God and his people. Whenever you step out in faith, it always feels like a loss first, doesn't it? But this is what happens when you get reoriented to something. There's always a disorientation that happens before you can be properly reoriented to see things rightly. Third and finally, how do, we, how do you view the poor among you? Do you really believe what Jesus is saying here, that a brother or sister's lack is your lack? And this is where we're called to see our true treasure is actually each other. We are brothers. 
We are sisters, we are fathers, we are mothers, we are sons and daughters. Where do people lack in our community and how are we moving towards them? Do we see their lack as our lack? Do we only concern ourselves with what we have to give up or do we consider the true riches of the kingdom that we gain in each other? And before we can do any of those things, though, we have to behold Christ, right? Christ, who saw our lack as his own lack and gave that we might gain eternal inheritance in heaven. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that he who was rich became poor, that we might become rich, right? He, he who was great became the least, that we might become great. And he did this because we are his treasure, and he has come to claim his treasure and do whatever it takes to gain it. And so we're called to behold him. And the truth is, your false affections will never love you back. Your false affections will end up crushing you. And you will crush them. But in Christ, we have someone who loves us more than we could ever imagine, who is willing to be crushed that we might not be crushed. And it's only when we behold this profound truth, right, that impossible work of Jesus... Only when we believe that that impossible work is actually true for us, that we learn to cling to it and daily trust it and lean on it. Trusting that Jesus can handle our affections. In fact, he is the only one that can handle our affections. And this is why it is right for him to be jealous for them because he is the place that, that our affections find their, their home. He's the only one worthy of our affections. So we're called to gaze upon him. May we be a people that behold Christ May we see our true treasure in him and in his kingdom. May we not be fooled by the treasures of earth, but may we together fan the flame of Christward affections in our hearts as the family of God. And as we do this, may that flame be a light in the darkness, a light to the world that is chasing false gods that will not achieve anything for them. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that the work that you call us into is work that you've already accomplished. May we lean on your finished work. May we trust in the impossible work that you have done for us, trusting in it, leaning on it, and seeing each other as our true treasure, as you are our treasure. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.